open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited about tonight um, for many reasons, but I think the most of which tonight is we get to talk about Jesus. And, and, and you know, I, I was sitting in my office today, taking that for granted, just thinking, you know what, what a, what a greater opportunity than to gather with a bunch of people that you love and some that you're just getting to know and to talk about Jesus. Are you with me? Like, is there, is there any better thing we can do? And we take that for granted a lot. We're like, yeah, Jesus, he's awesome. But no, no, no. Tonight, we get to talk about Jesus. Now, the last two weeks, we've seen Jesus um, a little bit on the defensive. And what I mean by that is a couple groups of people have asked him questions, trying to pin him in a corner, trying to nail him. Now, I think we could all agree that Jesus is always on the offensive, amen, as we saw last week with the Sadduceticals, you know what I mean, and their communist ways. They came at Jesus, and pretty soon, they're silenced by the words of Christ. Now, tonight, things shift a little bit. Jesus goes from answering questions to asking them. And so already, your heart should be beating fast. And should, yeah, so, like, what question is he going to ask? Well, let's look. Luke chapter 20, you guys all there? Sam, there. Verse 41 says this, by the way, if you're just joining us, this isn't a random passage tonight. We didn't like pull it out of the Bible. We're studying verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. We've only been in it about 23 months, so we're going at it really quickly. Here we go. Verse 41 says this, then Jesus said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? Now, if you're like me, you're like, this is an interesting question. How is it that the Christ is the son of David? It's interesting that he's in the last couple days of his life. And here in this moment, he's interested in the Christology of those that are around. In other words, he's interested about what the crowd thinks about him. And so he asks this question. How is it that they say that the Christ is the son of David? Which is a clear scriptural statement, isn't it? Over and over and over and over we see in the scriptures, including the gospel of Luke, we see the claim that Jesus is the son of David. If you're a Jew and you hear that Jesus is the son of David, what does that mean? That he comes from the royal line. If you're a Jew, like coming from the lineage of David is a very good thing. But Jesus calls this into question. Verse 42 says this. Look at this. David himself declares in the book of Psalms... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Are you guys with the question? Jesus says, David, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110 is what Jesus quotes here. The most quoted psalm in all the scriptures. By the way, an interesting note. I think often we think that David wrote all the book of, all the book of Psalms. Like, if you're like me, sometimes you just open a random psalm and, and you want to sound educated. So you're like, and David wrote in Psalm yada, 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 you know. The reality is David didn't write the entire book of Psalms, okay? He was the major contributor to the Psalms. Praise God, it's an amazing book. But he didn't write all of it. But he did write, if you're Captain Obvious, Psalm 110. Because if you open to the book of Psalm 110, you would see Psalm 110 of David. So, it's clear that Psalm 110 was written about and by David. Now... He makes some interesting statements in Psalm 110. Look at this. What does he say? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now the claim of Jesus is, 
is, what is David exactly saying here? Now the Hebrew word, the first word of Lord, if you looked in the Old Testament, different from here in the New Testament, is all capital Lord. L-O-R-D. Good spelling mark. L-O-R-D. All capital letters. Anytime in the Old Testament that you see L-O-R-D capitalized, what does that mean? It's the Hebrew word for Yahweh. It's the most powerful word for God in the entire Hebrew scriptures. L-O-R-D. In the Greek, it's translated similar, but it's not capitalized. The second word for Lord is the word Adonai in Psalm 110. And in this case, although not all the time, Adonai is interpreted Messiah. So now let's let's reread Psalm 110. The Yahweh or Yahweh said to my Adonai or Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what is he saying here? Jesus saying, how is it that the Christ is called the son of David, but David himself calls the Messiah Lord? Now, Romans chapter 1 helps bring some clarity. Look at this. Put this up for me, Andrew. Romans chapter 1 opens the entire book of Romans, opens this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Uh, Just like the David part, this means Paul wrote Romans, right? Amen? Right? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, look at this. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of who? Of David. So in the very beginnings of Romans, we have an affirmation that in the human sense, Jesus is the son of David. If you look at the lineage, it works out. But it keeps going. Verse 4. And who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the what? The son of God. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So in the physical, Jesus is the son of David, in the spiritual, in the better ritual, right? That's completely made up, right? He's the son of God. So what Jesus is saying is, how is it that the Christ is called the son of David? When it, in, in the physical, my dad's here tonight, right? In general, sons are under their fathers when it comes to authority and sovereignty, right? I mean, I could probably beat my dad up, but we can figure that out later. You know what I'm saying? Just kidding, dad. He's huge. He's like 6'6", six, six, right? He's a monster. But... In, in, the, in the general sense of father and son, the son sits under the father. But in this case, Jesus is saying is all of you Jews look up to David as this great father. And yes, I am underneath him in the physical sense, in the lineage sense. But when it comes to the spiritual, I am the son of God. I love this. Because right before his death, he's interested in Christology. He's interested in people's view of himself. And he's fixing it. He's saying, if you don't see me as the Messiah, then you're missing who I am. And if you miss me as the Messiah, then you've completely missed the gospel. So the question for you and I is, have we missed the Messiah? What is our Christology here in America? How do we view Jesus? I think you could agree with me that our culture has often feminized Jesus, right? Long, flowing, blonde hair, wearing Oakley sunglasses, you know, with a beautiful blonde bleached goatee, with a flowing robe, you know, with, uh, you know, some, some kind of melodic tune underneath him as he walks across the water. We've, 
we feminized Jesus. We've made Jesus this, um, this kind of lowly servant. And He was in the Gospels a servant. But the problem is Scripture and Revelation says that, there's a, that His robe is dipped in blood and He's coming back with a sword coming out of His mouth. That doesn't sound like any kind of lowly servant to me. I don't know about you. But all over in our culture, we're minimizing the view of Christ. We're minimizing the view of Jesus. And in so doing, creating an icon, creating a religion, and dismissing relationship. What do I mean? Uh, How many of you guys have ever worn a pair of Nikes in your life? Anyone? Okay, all of you? Not all of you? Wow, this is strange. Okay, have you ever heard of them? Nikes? Yeah, okay. Nike was doing pretty well in the early 80s. Just birth, it was a great company, the swoosh, just do it, they had it working. Then this little basketball player came along. And his name was Michael Jordan. Have you heard of him? Okay. Well, what happened was, Michael Jordan started wearing Nike shoes. Did you, were you guys aware of this? Yeah. And kids like me, because I was a kid in the 80s. Any other 80, 80 kids in here? Yeah, praise God. The 80s were awesome. Bring them back, God. Bring them back, you know? Yeah. Some of you guys are like, no, repent of that statement, right? But, but what happened was, Michael Jordan started wearing Nikes. And then, Michael Jordan started dunking the basketball all, all, all over everyone's head, right? My, my cousin, for those of you who don't know, uh, Jack Sikma played in the NBA, and there's a great reel, and he's seven foot tall, of Michael Jordan, like literally dunking, like holding my cousin's head, and just like smashing the ball through his head. But, I'm seven years old, and I go into the, I go into the shoe store, and I'm like, hey mom, um, we need some new shoes, and you know, I want to be like Mike, if I could be, you know what I'm saying? And so, you're drawn in, and it was a brilliant scheme by Nike. It was, if you wear Nikes, you can play like Michael Jordan. And then you buy them, and then you go play, you know? And you're like, what happened? Like, what, what kind of marketing faux pas is this? This is ridiculous, you know what I mean? And, 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 and this is happening. I mean, it just kept happening. People are still wearing Nikes because of Michael Jordan. Now Tiger Woods has come on the scene, right? So now you buy the Nike golf shoes. And you go out to the golf course, and you're like, now I'm going to hit like Tiger Woods, you know? And then you play, you know? But, but it's still this image of Michael Jordan became an icon. And, and none of us knew him. Like none of us in here are like, you know, bros with Michael Jordan. Unless I may, I'm mistaken, right? None of us in here have had tea and crumpets with Tiger Woods, right? Right before the British Open. None of us have, have done that. But we still believed in the icon. We still believed in the image. The problem with a messed up Christology and the reason why Jesus would fix it here is the danger of Christ simply becoming an icon and the cross becoming a symbol that we wear around our neck but that has no relevance to our life. When Christ is but a mere icon, then all of a sudden it's just this thing that we're following because it creates a Christian subculture. Just like Nike did. If you wear Nikes, you're a great basketball player. If you talk about Jesus, then you're a Christian and you fit in with all of the church subculture. The problem is, the view of Jesus as an icon and not the Messiah is not the Gospel. It's like we've made Jesus our poster child for Christianity. Do you know Jesus? Have you seen his poster? It's awesome. You know, the coloring's great. The mountains are in the background. I even have some, some scripture on the bottom. 
My friends, how dangerous is it when we have made Jesus into this, this poster figure and forgotten the fact that He's the Messiah. We've blasphemed the cross by making it some symbol of hope instead of understanding that that was the Roman execution stake that our Savior died on. We must learn how to have a proper view of Jesus. And in this case, He says, why is it that they call uh, me, the Christ, the Son of David? Because in reality, I'm David's daddy. In the physical I'm in his lineage, but in the spiritual, I made him. I created him. I designed him. I know every piece of him. Revelation 22:16 says that Jesus is talking, and he says that Jesus came from the roots of David, right? From the root of David and the offspring of David. In other words, he was the root. He made David, and still he came from the offspring of David. My friends, it's time to repent of making Jesus a Christian religious icon. He's not an icon. He's a Messiah. He's the one who would come to seek and save what was lost. And and we get confused because we like the Christian subculture. Because it's a safe place. For parents, it's a moral place. For parents, they can send their kids there and they can learn about good morality. Well, all the while, the Scriptures say, Hey, kids, you better learn how to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me because that's the Gospel. You see what I'm saying? Instead, we're just bringing our kids in, parents pushing them off on the church, and we're teaching kids it's a small world after all, instead of making disciples who are making disciples. And a disciple sees Jesus as a Messiah and not an icon. So it's time to take our posters down that just portray Jesus as this this iconic poster figure. And it's time to start saying, no, 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 no. I don't care what culture says about Jesus. I know Jesus because I've opened my scriptures. And in the scriptures, it paints this picture of Jesus as the Son of God. Yes, of David in the physical, but the Son of God. We must help reshape Christology in America because it's weak. And if Christology is weak, what else is weak, my friends? I would say everything. Because all we're longing for, all we're needing is more of Christ, more of what He would do in our life, more of how He would save us. And so, collectively, can we just take a second and say we don't want to like make Him this Michael Jordan person that none of us know. But we wear the shoes because it makes sense, because everyone else is doing it. No, no, no. He's not an icon. He's a Messiah. Let's keep going. He continues here, and I love this. In a, um, verse 45, it says this. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to His disciples, which I love because He gathered people's attention. Right? He gathers people's attention and then He talks to His disciples. He hasn't talked to His disciples in about a chapter or so. So now He focuses His attention on the disciples. Verse 46. Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. And love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Why? Because James chapter 3 says that teachers are held at a higher standard. So Jesus, um, can we just agree? He's very minimally on the defensive at this point. Can you? Like, he's now turned his game, right? 
and he's completely on the off. Beware, disciples, of the teachers of the law. And we're going to look at the five things now that Jesus calls to the table. First, he says, they walk around in flowing robes. Now, this is the need of the teachers of the law to be on display in worship. It would be easy for us at this point to bring up the traditionalists, wouldn't it? I grew up in a traditional church. What do you wear to traditional church? Sunday pimping best. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a tie competition. You know, even, even when you're a kid, like your parents will, and it's a clip on, but that's cool, you know? But your parents are, li- they're, they're putting on the best tie and they're, they're making sure that everything's great, you know? And, and you go to church and the women are all, you know, and how do you like my dress and how do you like my new pay less? You know what I mean? They're just going through the whole thing, you know? And it becomes, so it's easy at this point, it's easy at this point to say, yeah, yeah, well, those traditionalists, like, You know, we don't have to, like, walk around in church anymore with Sunday best. But friends, haven't we created the same thing? Yeah, maybe it's not with a tie. Or maybe it's not with, like, a a three-piece suit. But friends, how many of you, listen to this, how many of you, before you come into a time of worship, you literally are thinking in your mind, I wonder how this shirt will look. There's a lot of singles in here. How many of you, uh, before you come to church, you're thinking about, I wonder how this will look in front of everyone else. Because maybe there will be this guy or this girl there that I'll be able to connect with. And if, I, if like, he like, looks over at me and I'm worshiping, you know, and the shirt shows off my biceps, like maybe, just maybe, it will be, yeah. I think it's pretty clear here that Jesus says, beware of these people. Because when they come into worship, their focus isn't on me. When they're walking around, their focus isn't on me. They have created a religion and negated relationship. And so beware of those people who dress to impress. Now, I'm not saying, friends, that we're just supposed to walk around and whatever, you know. I'm not saying that you shouldn't think about your wardrobe. But what I am saying is that when it creates a chasm between you and Christ when it comes to worship, then we've created a problem. And we do not want to be a church here at Matthias' Lot that just attracts singles because it's some hookup place. Are you with me? And seriously, it's happening. In our culture, there's a lot of younger churches right now. That, And granted, I'll tell you one thing right now, at the same time, is we do desire to be a church that is growing godly women and godly men. And so if God brings them together, then praise God. But we're not 1-800 dating service here at Matthias' Lot. Are you with me? And so we must rid of the mentality that we're to dress to impress. We are to come with our hearts dressed to impress, ready to worship a king. Are you with me? So the first thing he says to beware of are the long flowing robes. The next thing he says, and love to be greeted in the marketplaces. How many of you guys, simple people, have ever seen Cheers? Yeah, I have. Isn't that true? Yeah. Okay. There was one character, and he would open, my dad and I watched this all the time back in the day. Why would your dad let you watch that? It was great, right? (laughs) There was this one character that would open the door, and when they would open the door, what would everyone say? Norm! Yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah. We just had a cheers moment. Now, what he's saying is, is that, that there's some people, like the teachers of the law, that just crave that. They crave walking into a room and knowing that everyone knows them. This is their need for attention. First is display, the second is attention. 
This is their need. They will give me more. Like, I want to be the norm. And share, like, I want to walk in and make sure that every single person knows me. More than just God knowing me and knowing my name. I want to make sure that when I walk into a room, based upon the, how I act and how I dress. And friends, many of us struggle with this. Many of us struggle with this. Let me tell you this. Jesus says that when it comes to attention, we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to get it. We're supposed to give it. What would happen if in a church community we created this culture where no one like wanted any attention and everyone was just ready to welcome the next person that came in the door? Like it wasn't at all about who knew you, but more about like how you could connect others. There's new people in this church right now who have never met a soul that just walked in. And after the, after the service is over, it will be easy for us to like get into our little circles because those people know us and we love that. We love love. We love to be greeted. We love for people to say, what's up across the room? We love that. What, what would happen, listen, if every single person in here was just looking around and saying, like, who, who can I greet? Because the gospel isn't that I get attention, but that I give attention to God and to others. Amen? And so he says, beware of these people because their attention is entirely, my friends, on themselves. And if you come in here on worship and ready to worship and, and all of your focus is inward, I'm gonna, you're going to miss everything. Because what we do here is nothing about you and all about him. The third thing that he says, beware of the flowing robes. They love to be greeted in, in, in marketplaces. And they have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. Do you guys remember a little story in the Gospel of Luke that we studied already? And where, in that little uh, parable, where did Jesus say to sit? He said, he said sit at the lowest seat so that when the, when the master came in, he would say, hey, come up and take the place of honor. Instead of sitting in the place of honor and the master coming in and say, dude, that's not your seat. Go back down to the lowly place. In the very teachings of Jesus, it's, hey, we're called to be humble servants. The third need of these guys is prominence. They want authority. They want to hold on. They want, to, they want people to know that they have the power and the authority. And this breeds a whole huge problem in the church. Because we're creating a Christian culture where we want the power, where we want the authority. And so when the world needs to see us reflecting that power to Christ, instead we say, yeah, like, you know, I'm big, I'm big bad Pastor Mark and Pastor Jason and Pastor Jeff. And I'm La Family leader over here. And I'm leader of ministry over here. And said, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I'm only standing here because Christ has had enough grace on my life to even give me this opportunity. The world needs to hear that, not see all of us saying, yes, we're big, powerful, holy, uh, you know, authoritative Christians. But that's what they're seeing. They're seeing Christians in and of themselves saying, we have the authority, we need the authority, and so just, just come here. Just come here. Like, give me more. My friends, when we become about our own prominence, can we agree that we've created a monster? Now, Jesus isn't done here. The next thing that he says is, is they devour widows' houses. Now, this is getting dicey. I mean, a widow is already one of the figures in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is most sympathetic to because they've lost their husband. They don't have a lot to live on. Now, what he's probably talking about here, listen to this, is a teacher of the law who's come in and tried to help them and in so doing been like, hey, I think we can help you here. We can uh, sell your house for a really low price 
and, and you know, I'll make some of the profit and we'll help you out and we'll just take care of the money piece and we'll give you what's left. Is there any greater danger, my friends, in, in what a travesty in going after the lowly? But again, these guys in the Scripture are all about themselves. The last thing that he says is, is they have lengthy prayers. Um, I don't think the focus here, because you're like, well, Mark, you've prayed a long time before, you know? You're like, actually, earlier that prayer, that was pretty lengthy, you know? I had you on the stopwatch, 46 seconds. Too long, you know? And I, don't think, I don't think he's talking about length here, right? I think he's talking about a lengthy prayer to hear themselves speak. Because I think we could all agree, if we're praying for three hours, and we're in the Spirit of Christ, and God's moving, that that would be something he would desire, Amen. So clearly he's not saying, don't ever pray more than 60 seconds, and if you do, death. No, I mean, he's not saying that, you know? He's saying that in the lengthy prayers, if the heart is focused on yourself, then there is a problem. These guys are completely caught up in external observance. It's religion. It's externally, I look like I have it all together and I'm pious. In other words, I'm holy or righteous. But they have not experienced internal transformation. Are you with me? They're externally observing a religion and internally dying. Now, how is this problematic for you and I? Because our Christian subculture celebrates piety, don't they? They celebrate good works, don't we? I mean, when we see people who look like they're holy... Don't you and I instantly place them on a pedestal? I mean, if I were to see a person that was just constantly over and over and over praying for like eight and a half hours on end, I would say that is that's probably hardcore, you know? Like that guy has some, but I have no idea what his heart is. All I do is constantly see him in public, going after Christ in prayer. It's so easy for us to get entangled because we are in a Christian subculture that celebrates the external. When you and I watch each other encourage those who are hurting, what do we do? We celebrate it. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but do you really know my heart? Do you really know that what I'm doing and participating in is a righteous act because God's empowered me and not just some external observance of a religion? Because when it becomes external observance, there is no life to it. Because internally I'm dying. All I want is more glory and more authority and more pursuit for myself. Are you following tonight a religion? Or are you in relationship? Having been internally transformed by Christ. Put up Galatians chapter 4 for me. Look at this beautiful verse. I love this. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law of Moses, To redeem those under the law. Now let me talk about this concept for a second. Uh, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments reveal to us how much we need Christ. It shows us that we can't measure up. So Jesus was the redemption. Showing that now you can come back to the Father and the law doesn't necessarily matter. Verse 6, or let's continue verse 5 there. That we might receive the full rights of what? Of sons. Because you are sons... God sent the Spirit of His Son into our what? First time I heard this, I was like, so you accept Jesus into your heart 
Like, that's kind of weird, you know? Like, you want to talk about, like, so when I was young, I was wrestling with this image. Jesus lives, like, how does that work, you know? Like, how does he come in and, like, how is my heart, like, how does that happen cardiologically, you know? Like, right? Is that heart? Yes, right? Now, look at this. Uh, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, the spirit who, cry, who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a what? But a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. It's the heart. It's God transforming the, the, the internal. Can we just say right now, who cares about the, ex, the, the external if nothing's happening inside? You might as well go put your pious act somewhere else if all you're doing inside is dying. Last week we talked about the concept of resurrection. When we, are fully, when we have fully died with Christ and united with Christ in His death, then we've united with Him in His resurrection. We are living because He's changed the hearts. Some of you know full well right now that you're here just externally observing a religion. Doing the thing and the dance and the hand thing and the Bible thing and the flowing robes and the prominent seat and the greetings when all the while your heart is dead. Jesus needs to get a hold of that heart and internally transform you so that then the external can just be the overflow of your heart. Scripture talks about our heart being a wellspring of life. There is no wellspring of life in religion. None. It's rote. It's day after day after day about yourself. Jesus says, I didn't come to start a religion. I came to start a movement. And the way you start movement is you change the hearts of depraved men and you make them more like Christ. And you don't create a subculture that just is able to repeat words and sing songs. That's religion. Jesus is calling to the table the external observance and saying, my friends, you must beware of those people because internally they are dying and they'll be punished severely because they claim to be teachers of the law. So why do you think that your claim of Christianity, despite struggling with religion, is any different? My friends, let's keep going. In verse, uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 1, we're going to finish up in these four uh, verses. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Now, for me, this is like a movie moment completely. Because you picture Jesus, and he's just like dropped some things on their heads. You know what I mean? He's just like, look, like external is internal. And then you just picture like the camera zooming in, and Jesus like looks up. You know what I mean? You can just picture that. Like you can picture the eyes and he, and, and, he, and he notices the rich, in quotation marks, putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Now, what the temple treasury is probably, to be honest, it's like our joy box. It was, it was probably 13 boxes or so in the temple. Now there's a little bit of, of question here, but, but it's possible that it was much like our joy box, right? I said joy box, everyone. Yeah, yeah. And so he looks up and he sees the rich dropping in their dimes, right? Much more than that, I'm sure, into the joy box. Verse 2. That's scripture there, joy box. Verse 2. 
he also saw a poor widow. Interesting, isn't it, that he was just talking about a widow. It's as if he knew the widow would be there. It's as if he knows what's going on, you know? He sees a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. These copper coins are called leptas, a small fraction of a day's wage. So he sees this widow drop in these two leptas. Verse 3, I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. She put in all that she had to live on. Let me try to put this in a, a framework for you. Let's say you have a million dollars. Amazing, right? You're like, that would be incredible, you know? Now, the concept is, you have a million bucks. You're loaded, you're rich, you're taking us all out to Applebee's after this. Now, the concept is, is that out of a million, you write a check for $25,000. I mean, that's, that's a, and people see that. Dude, is that three zeros? Yeah, yeah, what's up, you know? $25,000. And you drop that in. A million dollars, $25,000. Jamie, what's the percentage? Two and a half percent, right? Two and a half percent. But the two, five, zero, zero, zero seems like this huge number. Then this widow comes along and drops in these two or a few, whatever, leptas. Like this coin that has no... So you're looking at this, 25K versus a couple pennies. And Jesus says that the widow puts in more. And the question has to be how? Men see what's been given and God see what's le- sees what's left. Men see what's, what's been given. And God knows exactly how much is left, my friends. He sees, um, we see portion and he sees proportion. And so in this moment, this widow gives everything she has. And in this moment, he says she has given more. So the question for us is why? Why has this woman given more? Why has she given all that she has? Why is she a model for Jesus right now? Can I tell you why? Because this woman has been internally transformed. Because in this moment, this woman has been transformed by what God has done in her life and she is giving everything that she has, recognizing that everything that she has is His. You see, my friends, it's one thing for us to challenge each other on giving of our money and our times and our talents. And that can just as easily become external observance, can it? Hey, we need to give, we need to give. Yes, we do. But let me tell you what happens. As God transforms the internal, the external follows. It can't not. As He changes our hearts, as He messes up our lives and convicts us through the Holy Spirit, then the physical and the external follows. Then all of a sudden, we see Christians who are just giving all that they have because they don't know any better. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't know any better? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to talk about religion and we just didn't know any better? All we know is to give Jesus everything we have because that's what the Scripture says. We don't know anything else. 
We haven't been trained any other way. All we know is he's my only hope. He's my only answer. And so we're going for it. My friends, the call tonight is to leave religion. External observance of nothing behind. And to cry out that God would internally tonight grab every single one of our hearts and change us and mold us so that everything that comes out of our life is not for us and our gain, but for His glory. I've included a little piece of paper in your bulletin. If you guys can pull that out right now. Don't open it yet. Each of us tonight need to have a private moment with Christ. Private. Not public response. Not with the church singing. Each of us right now in this moment need to be asked some tough questions. We've just watched Jesus challenge the public when privately nothing's happening. Friends, can we not be that church that's religious? We didn't sign up for religion, did we? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Here in a moment, I'm going to ask you to find a place somewhere in this room. Maybe it's against a wall. Maybe it, maybe it is in your chair. Maybe it's back there by the cross. And I'm going to ask you to find a place in this room where you can have some time to break the seal and to wrestle with the questions on this piece of paper. And this is to be done tonight in private. Because when we stand before the throne of God, let me tell you something, none of the rest of us will be there. It's you and Him and the Son. And so I'm going to ask right now that every single one of you find a place in this room just to sit and to be and to reflect. And whenever you find that place, where all is gone, all distraction is gone, everything's out, that you can open this and break this seal and read these questions and sit tonight and wrestle with what's on this piece of paper. You and God. No one else. So the invitation is clear. Take a moment, find a spot, break the seal when you're ready, and let's spend some time reflecting tonight.